Welcome to the Senior Story Hour, where we share poems, stories, observations of life, written by the Franklin Senior Center Writers Group. Well, thank you all for joining us today for another Scribblers Writers Group session representing the Senior Center and beyond. Yay us. Yay Mm -hmm. us. We've already determined it was going to be swell today, right? I, I volunteered. You volunteered. Yes, I did. We thank you for that voluntary effort. That's what I'm about. It's what that's, I do. That's what you're about. This is Steve, and I'll kind of be the uh, moderator, host, facilitator, and we've got to my right, and then we'll go around and then come back virtually. And I'll still be Peter J., notwithstanding the fact that there are so many people who would really like me to change that. But, <laughs> <laughs> you know. Hello, I'm happy to be here. Hi, Pat. Good afternoon. This is Nick Remesong. And this is Faith Flaherty. Hello, I'm Bill Wiley. Hi, I'm Alice Judd. Hi, I'm Zenobia. Good to hear from you all today. I will volunteer to start because I'm working on an editorial and I think it will hopefully lend us into a more positive thing after I take us down in some deeps. So you're going <coughs> to hurl the gauntlet first and the rest Throw of us the are going to spend first. the hour keeping up with you. Yes, yes. Because I'm crying out loud. For crying out loud, we'll begin with a moment of reflection. Take a deep breath, centering where we are present. The headlines yesterday, at least in the Massachusetts area, were all over about Desi going after the Boston Public Schools for insufficient progress on a myriad of problems. In their 120-page assessment, the litany of errors Shortfalls, discrepancies, outlined in detail with the particular focal point, rather myopic in that DESE, Department of Education, excuse me, Elementary and Secondary Education, is the same organization that throughout the pandemic struggled to generate timely and accurate guidance for, amongst others, the Boston Public Schools. And those who live in glass houses should know not to throw stones for crying out loud. The headlines were all about Boston and Desi until word came on yet another shooting, another elementary school, (laughs) lives young and old, cut short by someone misguided at best, armed unnecessarily, who likely had cried for help, and yet the system did not respond. You can say it starts at home. He did. He shot his grandmother first for crying out loud. Perhaps lost amongst the other news headlines was one that 12 students at Franklin High School received the Commonwealth Seal of Biliteracy achieving proficiency in two languages. It had been 11 when I created the headline Tuesday morning. It would raise by one more to 12 as another confirmation of a student award was received. Unfortunately, not unlike the initial reports of 14, then 18, then 19, where will it end? I recall a poem from the Vietnam era by Robert Bly. Let's count the bodies over again. If we could only make the bodies smaller, the size of skulls, 
we could make a whole plane white with skulls in the moonlight. If we could only make the bodies smaller, maybe we'd get a whole year's kill in front of us on a desk. If we could only make the bodies smaller, we could fit a body into a fingering for a keepsake forever. Written during the Vietnam War and the repetition of the body counts, the news broadcast daily. For crying out loud, we'll come back to Franklin High School. It's little known, but there are more than 20 languages spoken within the halls of that high school. And those 12 students have mastered a couple. Maybe there is hope. Maybe among the halls of students, mastering language, which we in our writers group are also trying to master, they can lead us to a better place. Maybe they can bring a cracking, some would say breaking system to its senses. I hope so. I am tired of crying out loud. We'll end with a moment of reflection. Take another deep breath. Center where we are in the present. If we don't use the past lessons to foster change, what will our future be? For crying out loud. And some will recall, I wrote this two years ago in the middle of the pandemic. And I'll end with this because I believe it gives us a little bit of hope. I wake fearful. Take a breath. Realize it is a new day. We can do this. Thank you, Steve. Amen. Thank you very yes. much. Yes. Awesome. Yeah. Amen. Who the heck is going to follow that? <laughs> I know. I know. Just, yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. 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 From I a time perspective. Next. Yeah. Unfortunately, yeah. yes. Yeah. Thank you, Faith. Uh, oh, we, we, we need some lightness after that. So. No, it's not light. I was, well. I was wallowing in self-pity <laughs> because I've been losing. I'm going to belong to a cribbage club. And I have been losing for weeks. And when your points add up to zero, 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 you call that, you've got a string of pearls. How'd you like to hear a real oldie? How about the string of pearls? And the title of mine is Luck Undermines Skill. After winning a string of pearls tonight in Cribbage, I'm meditating on luck. <laughs> I've noticed that sometimes I can do no wrong. I win and win. Analyzing those times leads to no conclusion. Luck doesn't depend on how much or little sleep one has, nor does it matter whether one is thinking positive thoughts. Anyone walking outside during a thunderstorm must have been thinking positive thoughts until they were struck by lightning. But let's go back to playing cribbage. If I am skilled and am experienced, then I should win, right? Then explain beginner's luck. Why wouldn't the most skilled player win 
most of the time. It is said that cribbage is 10% skill and 90% luck. Those aren't good odds. <laughs> but it does offer hope for poor players. Card players will say they're lucky or unlucky today. Why is a futile question. Luck is random. But if you are winning, then don't change a thing. Use the same cards, don't change your seat or anything. Don't go to the bathroom. However, <laughs> next week, you can wear the same clothes, use the same cards, and sit in the same seat, and you lose. Luck is fickle. The conclusion is that there just seems to be no plausible explanation. So what should I do about it? Since luck is unforeseeable, maybe I should just not try to be lucky, but rather aim to be good at what I do. Play cribbage the best that I can, and if I lose, consider that I played poorly or that I was beaten by a better player. I should learn by these mistakes. Of course, when I get a string of pearls like today, there's no explanation except that I had no luck. That doesn't make me feel better. I'd rather be lucky than scared. But you are the one true faith. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. There you go. That's right. I should keep yeah. that in mind. Believe in myself. It. All right. So, moving on. Who's next? Any volunteers? We can I'll, pick I'll and choose. I'll go. Why not? I'll, I'll go over you. Bill, you're up. Okay. See? That I, was I, easy. I wrote a lighthearted one uh, about amaryllis flower that, that I had recently. Uh, the amaryllis flower, so beautiful and bright, the colors so grand, a beautiful sight, with bright pink and white colors that shine as the sun. The large flowers, there never is just one. Flowers come out two at a time or maybe more. I could be lucky and possibly get four. Flowers so beautiful... They won't be around long. I'll take lots of pictures before they are gone. I see them, if I'm lucky, one time a year. Sometimes bulbs need to be separated. Glad they are here. They will grow other bulbs if you don't see the flowers, but they are so beautiful. Stare at them for hours. The emeraldous flower, one of God's creations. I'm happy I'm here in this great nation. Nice. Very nice. All right. Very nice. It didn't come out too. Didn't come out too badly. No, no, not at all. Your usual good job. I'm going to take us back to one of my favorite places. Once again, we return on a brief trip down to Rising Run. Rising Run. Rising Run. Yeah. You recall in several of our thrill-packed episodes, all my episodes are thrill-packed. That uh, we have a little girl named Dandy Darling. And we have Skylar Wingham as characters. Skylar's, you know, the big guy. Mm -hmm. And uh, they hang out together. And this follows the episode that they had uh, with respect to Skylar letting Dandy roll back and forth down, down Rising Run and wanting to create a gravity motor. And in this particular chapter, this is where they begin to institutionalize their working, playing, learning relationship. Dandy, a little girl with an outsized imagination, along with Skylar, the big guy, always curious in his own way. The duo shared one trait, a boundless curiosity that bound them together in common cause, science. The chapter's title is, 
We're doing sciencey stuff. For Dandy, each science fair was serious business, and she was competitive. If Mom Dory could win blue ribbons for pies, Dandy was going for gold. With her dad, Mac, as coach, she was on it, but insisted she was to make her projects all by herself, making stuff. That was the fun part. Mac's fix-in barn was chock full of whatever her imagination needed. Skylar would come by to help Dandy work at her latest experiments. He enjoyed listening to Dandy talk about science. He liked doing science with her and proved to be a good sounding board. If Dandy could explain her projects to Skylar, it helped keep things clear when she presented her work to the judges. She taught, he listened, they both learned. As physical opposites, they made for an odd pairing, diminutive Dandy explaining science to the big guy, Sky taking it all in and asking more questions. While Schuyler was not a traditional book learner, he followed along fine enough when somebody patiently showed him new things. Sky would ask the occasional question that would give Dandy pause for an answer. How come? As in, how come it turns that way instead of the other way? What makes? As in, what makes that little motor thingy keep spinning around? In that easy way, they were well-matched. Schuyler and Dandy were bonded by their shared curiosity about this wide world we all live in. They were doing science-y stuff. As take-in kids, they also took to each other like siblings. For Dandy, an afternoon of doing science with Schuyler was akin to any other cute little girl's playtime tea party. Instead of being surrounded at the tea table by stuffed toys, Dandy's workspace was stuffed with tools and parts. She had her own little work table set up at child height in one corner of the fixin' barn. Hers was a smaller, kid-friendly version of Mac's more systematically organized bench. Schuyler, as helper-at-large, did his best to arrange tools and projects with Mac's bench as a guide. Dandy addressed Schuyler as her research laboratory assistant number one. Schuyler liked being number one. During their high-tech version of playing at tea party, she would call out a needed tool and he would dutifully hand it off to her. Instead of sugar, cream, please, and thank you, it was number one, pliers. Number one, screwdriver. This was playtime. This was doing science. For play is the work of children by Jean Paget. Here were two children, big and small, working away. Caution. Kids at work. Very nice. Yep. Very nice. Great. Alice, you want to go? Oh, sure. I wanted to do, um, this is from my archives, but you know, the weather has been so beautiful and so hot last Sunday, but it's really hot. And I do have air conditioning that is wonderful, but so my heart goes to the seashore. And of course, this is a story about my, my happy place, but it's called the Gray House. And this happened in 1999. So um, if people want to go back to that, um, I thought it strange that my rental agent and his assistant were standing in the middle of the Pebble parking area where I had rented a one-bedroom apartment for the first week in July. But nobody could have ruined my high spirits that hot summer day. I was in my favorite place along the coast of Maine. I would relax, soak up some sun, walk and have fun. My daughter had accompanied me up as driver 
And as we wondered why the two were there, they hesitantly walked over, peering into the driver's window. In a nervous voice, he began, we had rented your apartment to an attorney and his 17-year-old son for the summer, with the exception of a few weeks, one of which was yours. He paused, evidently wanting me to take in all that he had said. I didn't reply, wondering what my rental agent would say next. He continued, when the cleaning lady went to the apartment to prepare for your arrival, the teen told her he was there for the summer and not to bother. She, unfortunately, did not check with back with me, he said. Was that sweat on his brow from the hot day or from anxiety? When my assistant and I same, came today to inspect your place, we were upset to see the unit totally trashed. Apparently, the son threw a party last night. He then told me there were only two rentals available in the whole town, due to the July 4th holiday. I could take a studio in the same apartment as the unit I was supposed to occupy at a lesser cost and they would return some money, or there was a place at Tea Kettle Lane. I couldn't believe what I heard. Tea Kettle Lane was my favorite part of town, close to the ocean and quaint shops. Excited, I didn't say anything to him, but clued my daughter in. We all walked through the studio apartment, making sure we appropriately spent time noting every detail, then said it was too small. We drove to the other place. The gray house, as the realtor referred to it, was at a cul-de-sac on a short street. The agent looked like he was in pain, lest I not decide on this house. He need not have worried. A sunroom greeted us as we walked into the house. It connected to a living room. There was a galley kitchen with a half bath and back of the staircase going to the second floor. Continuing through the first floor, there was another small room, which took us into a TV room. As everyone climbed the stairs, the rental agent assured me the house would be a swap for the apartment at no additional cost to me. The rent on this place is $1,200 a week, he said. The thought of the $550 apartment I almost had and it appeared I had gone to heaven, but I hadn't seen the biggest surprise yet. There was a huge master bedroom, complete with a full bath, including a claw tub. Off to the right was my own private sun deck, where I could see the ocean peeking out beyond the trees. The week was surreal, with friends and family coming up to enjoy my good luck. The TV room had a pull-out couch, and outside my bedroom was a room accommodating, too, so there was plenty of room for my family and friends. Sitting on my private deck, enjoying iced tea, looking directly into the face of the ocean was incredible. I must admit, though, after a couple of days, I settled in 
and took my good fortune in stride. At the end of the week, it was tough to say goodbye to the gray house. The realtor was still apologizing when I returned the house keys. I was getting tired of his belaboring the point. He gave me my security deposit back right away. Most times the money is sent to the renter after a place is inspected. He said the attorney and his son had lost theirs. I returned to the gray house for several years after that. Then I spent three years renting the white house next to it, as it was called. It was smaller, but had a screen porch. I often go back in my mind to that house in Maine. Everything had been perfect. And each step of my adventure had flowed smoothly into a miraculous memory to treasure. Ah. Mm, how beneficial. Yes. On there. Or something. <clears throat> And then I kept going back and getting poorer by the minute. Well, I have a nostalgia piece. Oh, good. uh, And it has to do with uh, my youth and uh, how things were for young people in the city of Boston and how they survived after the Depression in their family life. So it's your youth, huh? It's a a tell-all piece? I was was there once. Uh (laughs) Once, yes. (laughs) So I'm revisiting the neighborhood. In the early 1940s, we were into World War II. Most people were making sacrifices and doing without, as rationing of many goods was in effect. Life was simple then, at least it was for the children, who accepted their own little world as the only one they knew and made the most of it. When my brother John and I would leave the house, my mother would always ask us where we were going. And the answer most often was, out. We were the oldest, uh, the oldest sons and with five other children to look after. She usually settled for that and with just a don't be light for supper. Besides, everything mothers did in those days was labor intensive, from cooking and baking along with laundry, busy enough. Out to us in the Boston City area was finding others to amuse ourselves with in street and yard games of every kind and imagination. Boys might bring along a pocket full of wax baseball cards of their favorite baseball players to swap or gamble with with a slide for a win to be the nearest to a chosen wall. Many could play, and the nearest to the wall would pick up the other cards to add to their collection. Then there were sidewalks, which were perfect for a tennis match with the four square blocks that became the court. A game would begin with an open-hand palm serve of a pimple or pink ball of the day to the opponent behind his lines who would make a speedy return with his left or right palm, staying within the lines to avoid a foul. And on went the game, and on went for a game of 21. Those same lines were used by placing a bottle cap in the center line and hitting it with the ball to knock it over your opponent's line for a game. When those balls became damaged, we were not through with them yet, as they were cut in two for a game of half ball, where it was pitched to a player with a broomstick who would take a swipe at that elusive, floating, spinning object with the hope of hitting it for a certain distance that was agreed to to be a single, 
a double or a home run. Other baseball rules applied. Damage to the bike tires could be included in that same game as they were cut into six-inch missiles that would go a mile when struck at that broomstick. In a backyard, a circle would be carved with a pocket knife in dirt that couldn't grow grass. Then with a knife in, uh, with the knife in your hand, you would flip down into the circle and the direction the knife faced determined a slice of the land you now owned. The game was called territory and the wi <coughs> winner was the one with the most land after five tosses each. With our large family and a tree in the backyard with a Tarzan swing, it became a popular playground for both boys and girls. You could climb the fence with the rope and swing out into the middle of the yard with your best ahoo in flight. And then we also had a slanted wood bulkhead that was perfect for throwing that pink or pimple ball hot enough to ricochet back to you, not unlike the kids with a net today. There was no end to the games you could play with a ball and a wall. With a large gang in the yard, you had enough kids to play Red Rover, Red Rover, where someone is selected from one team to bust through your line and of held hands, and if they are captured, uh, they are captured if you stop them. Then there was knock the can off the rock, where the one who was it placed his tin can on a rock, while others threw cans to knock it off. When this happened, the one who was it had to scramble to place yours and his can on top of the rock to make you it. Lots of yelling and screaming for this no-cost amusement. Our living at an intersection allowed us to play corners, where four players occupied corners, and the one that was it was in the middle of the street. It was somewhat like musical chairs. People in the corners would make signs with their eyes for a swap. They would swap corners once they uh, got an agreeing glance. And the person who was it had to watch everybody and then run fast enough to an empty corner to beat the one of the swappers to that corner first. So if that person was beat, they would now be the one who was it. During that race, people on the other two corners may also swap places. The streets were relatively safe to play in those days as few cars would come by since men were away at war, gas was rationed, and not many women were driving in the early 1940s. With very few baseballs or footballs in the neighborhood, we had to improvise with rags and wads of paper to make balls for playing baseball or football. We sure could have used duct tape then. Girls had games that they were very adept at, played along the sidewalk or the street. They had hopscotch, jump rope, and jacks, all of which call for one to be graceful and nimble, something most boys were not always good at. And when the girls weren't looking, some of the boys may try it, and that would give the girls a laugh if they caught sight of some of those attempts. Some of the more common games were hide-and-seek, tag, marbles, foot races, among too many more to mention that even include word games and ways to determine who is up or it. 
Young people were so adaptive and inventive that they had no trouble making the most of their circumstances no matter what and would tap into whatever was available. A good alternative to for bathing in a tub of cold water in our large family for my brother John and I was a place called the Vine Street Gym, built for the neighborhood by the famous mayor of Boston, James Michael Curley. It was his district way back. It had hot showers and much sports equipment in a gym that included a running track. For a penny each, you could buy soap and the number of towels you needed for the shower. Brother John was a good boxer, and Obi, who ran the gym, wanted him to enter the Golden Gloves competition. Needless to say, we spent many hours there, and at the end of the day, Obi would make his bellowing call. Time to go home! For everybody to finish up. Within two blocks from our house, just below the movie theater, there was a store selling Italian imports, run by a wonderful family with two brothers who made great cold-cut sandwiches that we call Spuckies, which were not unlike the sub or the hero sandwich of today. They were very busy at their slicing machines, laying out the meat and cheese onto these incredible, crunchy, open-sliced bread sandwiches. As you came through the door, you smelled all that you knew you wanted. A normal sandwich was 10 or 15 cents with your choice of what to put on it. We always got in line at Frank's machine because he would make you a five cent one as he liked us and was kind to kids. My five cent order was for sweet capicole and provolone cheese with a lather of that incredible mustard. Frank would put down a cut of white butcher paper and your eyes would watch the grace and rhythm as he cut the slices from the wheeling blade to layer the meat and cheese across that bread, finishing with a smear of mustard. As you hand him your nickel, your glances each say, thank you. On your way out the door, you're already opening the paper to take that first big bite into that crunchy bread to chomp away at that mix of great tastes. If you have another nickel, you may head for the nearest variety store or Coke machine to get a bottle of that stuff for a swig to wash it down, not letting the fizz get up your nose. After all that, you might want to take in the movies at the ideal theater nearby, where they have something called continuous attractions as the movies run all day. You could go in any time, and when you've seen it all, you may say to yourself, hey, this is where I come in, and get up and leave, or stay longer if you wish. John and I also had the boys' club built in the neighborhood for children by who else but James Michael Curley, the man who never forgot where he came from. Whoever knew we would want more out of life? Down memory lane. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you touched. Like a precious memory. Mm -hmm. Good memory. You your grandkids and your great grandkids will love that story. Yeah, I think they might find it interesting uh, how it was way back. <laughs>
You mm-hmm. touched on many things yeah. that I remember. <laughs> oh, yeah. You touched, don't forget, <laughs> we're Boston Irish. <laughs> <laughs> Zenobia, do you have something? Yes, and it is actually my excuse note, like you had to do in school uh, for not being here last week, because I was on <laughs> what I call Life on the Amazon Trail. <laughs> yes. Recently, while speaking to a dear friend, she happened to mention that she was getting together a box of goodies to surprise me with. She had no idea when she would send it, and so my heart sank. Maybe in a week or two was as near as she could get. And let me tell you, this friend and I exchanged really cool stuff for our personal use and for sharing in our respective ministries. I look forward to those boxes because they contain a lot of senior hacks and gadgets that make life easier. And because she lives in a Southern state, sometimes there are goodies for me with brand names that we do not see here in Minnesota. I look forward to her packages, but until now had not explained to her the difficulty I had in receiving them. Sharing this with anyone is painful because it brings out the feelings I don't like to feel. The feeling of living in a three-story, 90-unit senior building where for all its modern amenities, uh, can be difficult when it comes to tracking down our packages. When I worked in the main office in this building, I made sure all the FedEx, UPS, and Amazon folks left packages inside my office if the residents were not home or for some reason were not answering their phones. Some people don't know how to work those code boxes, and a moment of confusion can can lead to your package being dropped in the main hallway by a frantic driver who scribbles a note, takes a picture of the item and dashes back to their truck as if the building is on fire. I know many are thinking, well, they're supposed to do this and that and notify you of this and that, but that seldom happens here. I'm a packageaholic and I know the trouble there is in getting these packages into the correct hands. Managers are aloof sometimes because they're young forever. And they say things like, shouldn't be ordering all that junk in the first place, which boils my blood because most have private homes where until in recent years with the onset of porch pirates were safe and reliable for their boxes to be dropped off. And besides, they mostly think that older folks send off for too many silly things. And that might, that might be so, but silly or not, you want the goods you send for. You might still be asking if you live in a senior building, what is the problem with their leaving your package in the lobby and you're coming to get it later? I'm chuckling already at that because in my building, there are groups that we refer to as the roaming relatives ranging in ages from 12 to 40-something, who identify themselves as grandchildren, adult children, and a cast of thousands who might spy your property and decide it would look better under their arms, in their cars, or wherever else. At a quick look inside, they may decide to keep it. 
So we have to be on the alert about the mail that will not fit inside our mailboxes. This can also be a problem because our hallways are long, and I do mean long. Picture those hallways in The Shining. When I go do the laundry, I expect to run into a snarling Jack Nicholson on route to do bodily harm to his unsuspecting wife and son. So one day, my youngest son offered a solution. Mom, why not get a lockbox at another location and get your Amazon orders over there, he asked. He finally figured out that I was literally trotting back and forth trying to guess when my goods would arrive, peering out the back door where they sometimes deliver, then trying to squint beyond the double front doors to see if the big green UPS truck is there for me or someone else. At first, he offered a just get a solution. You know the way well-meaning people do when they think you did not think a thing through. Just get a post office rental box was his first suggestion. Not considering that our nearest post office is not within walking distance, his mother has no transportation, and his out-of-state truck driving would make me wait a long time to get my mail, as well as having to pay those monthly fees that take a bite out of my generous Social Security allowance. When he figured out all that, he said, well, just use my Amazon box and I can pick up your things for you. This settled a little of my anxiety and up until last Wednesday, it was working. At least for my Amazon orders, all my packages were delivered safe and sound to a place called the Amazon Hub, which is housed in a Godfather's Pizza place right around the corner. In good weather, I can walk there with a friend and not even cross the street. Other packages have to be tracked down and some of my friends do not save their tracking numbers. So I have to run back and forth on the day that maybe I will receive what I'm looking for. So what happened last Wednesday? Somehow Amazon got it twisted and instead of sending my stuff to the hub, sent it to my home address, EGADS. After all this time, they decided to to use not only my home address after I carefully checked the hub option, but broke down my one order into a million separate orders with different delivery dates and times. I tried calling them and a sweet young thing who assured me that all my deliveries were coming to my home address. I asked her the reason why they were doing that. And she said, well, Ms. Carson, we, we have to use the address, your address as a reference. Then she went silent, end of story. I was thinking a reference for what? A subtle way to drive me insane? This did not help. So I was off to the races. I dressed carefully as some other women do to sit in the lobby for hours awaiting their own packages. They adorned themselves in all kinds of finery just to sit and wait. I realized one day that some of the finery they were wearing came in those boxes. And I, I tried to cooperate by wearing something casual, but kind of cute. I kept tracking my goods, however, while listening to a laundry list of recent aches, pains, and new medications, gossip about the new residents on floor one or two, I kept tracking. 
Every moving vehicle that looked Amazonish caught my attention. Finally, uh, one, two of my packages arrived. Then another I got was sent to the pizza place and two more on Thursday. By the time I assembled my goodies, I was far too tired to enjoy them. On Friday, while having lunch with Madlock, a timid knock on my door said, uh, the caretaker, I broke down. I was like, I didn't send for anything. You have a package, he said, from the other side. And I cracked the door enough to slide my hand inside, outside, I'm sorry, hoping it was not a big one, but it was, and wondering what it could be. A bonus package from Amazon, something I didn't ask for. I thanked him and closed the door. Sure enough, it was not an Amazon, but a carefully wrapped and labeled box from that friend sent through the regular postal system. Another surprise. And as much as I love her and everything inside that box, if not for the alert caretaker, I might not have received it. There seems to be no solution to our package dilemma here at Creekside Gables. I think I'll check with Amazon though and order a nice pair of roller skates. <laughs> Just don't lose the key. Boy, that sounds like a real problem. Yeah. It is. It actually Especially is. Especially since people will take the For sure. Nick, you got something for sure. us? Sure, yes I do. I'm glad to. Um uh, as most of you may know, I've recently retired, uh, and this is about uh, some of the changing of my habits since I've retired. Uh, clearing the clutter from my desk at home had previously been a Sunday night affair, taking about 30 minutes. Clearing just enough to create a legal tablet-sized space on top so that I could lay out a bare-bones outline of tasks for the week ahead. But since retiring, I realized I had never really cleared the clutter so much as rearranged it. I would use the file folders labeled with the nature of the contents contained within and stuff those folders into plastic milk cartons. Some of those folders had grown from short story length to that of three-volume Victorian novels. Using a decluttering method I've always thought of as swallowing the frog, I decided to attack this problem by going through the largest of these files first, the one labeled Scraps. Now, scraps contained hundreds of post-it notes. Those are both a blessing and a bane to writers. Among other things, old store receipts, pages torn out of magazines, and other bits of ephemera. After sifting through two and a half pages of items that sparked no memory, I did, at last, come upon one that set off more than mere sparks of memory. It ignited fireworks and set off floods. It was the title of a book, K.C. Lightning, by Stanley Crouch. Stanley Crouch was a writer and jazz critic whose prose rhythms were as lyrical and thoughtful as the musical rhythm, rhythms he critiqued. He stoked the fires that kept jazz alive by championing those who pursued a genre too many had dismissed as having had its day. One of his greatest tools in this crusade was his great love for and knowledge of one of the giants of jazz, Charlie Yardberg Parker, the subject of his biography, K.C. Lightning. Parker's solos, long, soulful, rapid, yet lingering cascades of rising and falling notes layered upon other notes in patterns that have never been matched, exist today as music played at the highest level of genius. Crouch tells one story about Parker being asked 
to run through a page of sheet music handed to him by an admirer. He scanned the page and stated that he could never play anything that complex, whereupon he was informed that this was a note-for-note transcription of a solo he had played several nights before, transcribed by the admirer from a recording he had made on an old wire recorder. Now, there's another story mentioned by Crouch, and this deals with Parker's state of being towards the end of his life. Uh, At that time, he was suffering greatly with depression, uh, the shattering of his mind after decades of heroin addiction, and the demons within him that was exemplified by his never closing his eyes during his solo, seemingly too fearful to see these demons. Charlie wrote a heartbreakingly plaintive letter to John Burke's Dizzy Gillespie. Gillespie, his greatest friend and collaborator, a man who stood next to Parker on stage and in the pantheon of jazz giants, also was the last man to stand next to him in life. The letter pled with Dizzy to come to him, to explain why, and to save him. The letter was postmarked from Camarillo Mental Institute, the home for the insane in Camarillo, California. That post-it note in that file has convinced me that it is well worth adding to my scraps folder. That's still in progress. Mm. Nice. Wow, that's good. Thank you. Thank you very much. Pat, you said you got a poem for us from Billy Collins? The poem is titled Today by Billy Collins. If ever there were a spring day so perfect, so uplifted by a warm, intermittent breeze that made you want to throw open all the windows in the house and unlatch the door to the canary's cage. Indeed, rip the little door from its jam. A day when the cool brick paths and the garden bursting with peonies seemed so etched in sunlight that you felt like taking a hammer to the glass paperweight on the living room end table, releasing the inhabitants from their snow-covered cottage so they could walk out holding hands and squinting into this larger dome of blue and white. Well, today is just that kind of day. Mm. Yeah. Wow. Let it be there. Lovely. Yeah. Yes. Quite it. Very nice. Yeah. <laughs> In the meantime, to recap, we've spent some time on Boston streets, going down Rising Run, checked out some Amaryllis, been on an Amazon journey. We've gone to lots of places. We went to Maine. Mm-hmm. We went to Maine. And we still want to go to Maine. That's right. <laughs> and this was the day that was. And hopefully we'll also now start getting our packages on a regular basis. <laughs> if we're lucky. Yeah. <laughs> and there is always hope of more packages of swell coming to us. Yes. Eventually. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So... So, Steve, once again, we are the Goodly Group. I'm Peter J. Al. Pat. Nick. Bill. Steve. Zenobia. Alice. And this is Faith Flaherty. Thanks for being with us here on Senior Story Hour. Until the next time, I'm Peter J. Remember, be they laced with gravity, levity, wisdom, or whimsy, the meaning, experiences of life become a little larger when you share them, when you take a moment to commit pen to paper and just write. This is FPR, Franklin Public Radio.